Hello and welcome to episode 86 of the Film Yak Podcast. I'm John. I'm Kevin. And I'm JR. Hey, nice. <laughs> Way to use those pronouns. Uh, this week, we are gathered to discuss the new Werner Herzog film, Family Romance LLC, now streaming on Mubi.com uh, exclusively uh, for a month, I guess. Well, for a little under a month now. It's been out for about a week. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's going to be what we're talking about, as well as uh, lots of other stuff we watched. More Spike Lee coming at you, probably. Um, and, uh, yeah, how are you guys doing this week? Doing good. It's been such an eventful week since we last recorded. Yeah. I know, so, right? Pretty excited. Crazy, crazy stuff going on yeah. in the world and in our personal lives. Uh, I, you know what? I mean, let's just get right to it. What <laughs> did we watch just in the last week here? <laughs> Who wants to start? Kevin started last time. All right, I'll, I'll start. Sorry. Do it. <laughs> I'm not chewing, I swear. Um... Yeah, I'll start, uh, you know, I'm not done with my Spike Lee deep dive, not by a long shot. Mm. So I got a beautiful uh, Blu-ray rental copy of Miracle of St. Anna. At St. Anna, excuse me. Uh, This was the notorious flop that Spike Lee put out in 2008 after, um, you know, calling out, you know, infamously calling out Clint Eastwood for, you know, not really having uh, any people of color in his World War II um, movies that I can't Flags of Our Fathers and Sands of Iwo Jima thank you I guess that one did it technically have people of color no letters from Iwo Jima <laughs> right right yeah. Sands of Iwo Jima John Wayne would be right <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah okay yeah. I was gonna say JR would be the man to know yeah and I, I did look this up in the um, the week since our last uh, discussion about Spike Lee's budgets and uh, also a 45 million dollar budget and I was like, "How is this such a huge flop if it only cost forty-five million fucking dollars?" And that's because it only made seven million, <laughs> which is just—it's amazing that uh, just such a big Spike Lee release could even have make that little money. It made no sense. Mm. Um, was it like a wait, limited wait. release or something? No, nah, it was wide release. No. It's just because oh. it has nobody in it. This is a wide uh, Christmas release. It has nobody in it, and it wasn't an awards contender, even though they probably thought it was going to be. Yeah. It was poorly received by critics. Mm-hmm. So it's, well, to see. it's two hours and 40 minutes long also. Are you going to invest that much time in something that doesn't I mean, seem worth it? Yeah. You could argue that the biggest star in this movie is Walton Goggins. Uh, <laughs> wow! Pre, pre-justified. Um, That's right in smack dab in the middle of the shield. Mm, right at the end of the sh- right at the end of the shield. Maybe it's his first post shield performance. Uh, th- you know, the movie follows a uh, a real life all black uh, Italian uh, who gets stranded by their leaders on the wrong side of a river, and uh, you know it's down to just four of them left. Everyone else is killed in a battle in the beginning, and one of the one of the men saves a young boy, young Italian boy. And uh, they hole up in a small town where they get to know the locals waiting for, you know, asshole Walton Goggins to, to come and get them, basically. Uh, there are some complications with a local band of Italian freedom fighters involving a, na- a massacre at a nearby church, which is the titular uh, St. Anna. And um, I think Spike wanted like a, to mix sort of classic 
war film style characters into a modern violent action-packed war movie like the our four main characters are are just stereotypes we have the the cool leader we have the asshole the practical smart one and the fat stupid one uh and they all of them are just so so broad um and and even like when they're marching when the whole battalion is still together marching across this river like there's even one guy like doing like the cigar chopping thing like right out of an of a 50s war movie it's uh it's definitely an intentional thing that he went for um and it just it does not work at all because he also wants you to care about these characters and there's just there's nothing to latch on to ever and uh, and then of course it creates this just tonal disparity that uh you know doesn't work when your movie's uh two hours and 45 minutes long uh, it's just it doesn't work and there's also uh, a useless framing story that appears to be mimicking 40s detective noirs that features uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt as a, a young hotshot reporter with a bad accent and John Turturro as a, an asshole detective and uh, yeah it just it, it it's just so many bad things combining uh, into just uh, what I think is absolutely Spike's worst narrative movie I have seen it's uh wow that is harsh and, and then also mm. he does it's the third movie um in my spike deep dive that just like spike it, if you had not written the women at all it would have been better stop stop writing women like this uh it's bad i i, I it's the only spike movie i've seen that i think is legitimately a waste of your time um you know i i know there's some dislike i don't like school days but i i think that they're I think we've got like a very young director who's showing little flashes of what he would be doing better later. And this, this is none of that. There's, it's just a total mess. Well, speaking of, sure. And speaking of that, not to get back into school days, but like, it's shocking that he goes from school days is such a, I agree. He's showing flashes of it and he just, kind of like the, his film after that is do the right thing. And it's like, it's crazy how much better it is. Like, yeah. it's like, he's completely polished and, and that was perfect. It, it was mean. either one. It was the next movie. It was either the next year or two years later. I can't remember. Oh, um, it was the next year, 88 and 89. Yeah. That's from school days to bamboozled in 2000. He had at least one feature length movie in theaters every year. Yeah. Which, is fucking crazy. Yeah. It's Woody two, Allen. Two in 1996. <laughs> but yeah, um, I'm done. All I'm right. Done. Saint Anna. Kevin? Yeah. So I watched The Gentleman, Guy Ritchie's newest uh, British gangster film. I'll say that I saw the very end of this movie. I was visiting my mother's house and my brother was watching this on Netflix or something. And mm. I, I watched the very end of it with him. Cool. So I know what happens at the end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like uh, I don't. I'm trying to think if I've seen Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels. Now I'm trying to wonder if that's even Guy Ritchie. That might be that Matthew Vaughn. It, it, it is Guy Ritchie. It's Guy okay. Ritchie. It's okay. His okay. first Sorry. film. Okay. Yes. Um, his only good film. No offense. Well, <laughs> well you know, you're, you're wrong. I haven't seen Revolver. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I I need to watch Revolver again. I remember it being like really weird. 
I haven't seen that or uh, Rock and Rolla. Or I need to, I need to, need to watch Rock and Roll again. I think I've seen two Guy Ritchie films. I think I've seen Snatch and Lockstock. And that's okay. It. Yeah. I mean, I loved, loved Snatch. And for me, the gentleman plays in kind of the kind of the same realm. Like, sure. I think, like, I just it's just so much fun. Like, I, you know, I could sit here and argue, like, oh, well, camera this, story that. But, like... It's just so much fun and it's so and I think it's I think it's so well done and like sure. I love I like McConaughey is great. Colin Farrell is so fucking good in this. Like like uh so the story like um Matthew McConaughey's character is uh this American who's come over to England as a kid and he was in the boarding schools and he started dealing weed to a bunch of, you know, rich English people. And that became a career, and he became very rich and influential with all of it. And so things are starting to take a rocky turn for him as he's tr- as he's nearing retirement. And uh, one some of the people involved are these kids from a boxing gym that is run by Colin Farrell, and he's just. He's just so hilarious and he's so great. Like it's this, you know, kind of kind of typical like I, you know, mafia like I'll do you a favor, you do me a favor, etc. And he, somehow Colin Farrell's character just becomes really good at doing all this mafia shit, but he's like, "What am I doing? This is mafia shit." And it's hilarious. And I haven't seen I haven't seen a lot of stuff with him honestly, but this is the most entertaining I've ever seen Charlie Hunnam be. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, we also uh, Henry Henry Golding I think is his name from uh, like recently uh, Crazy Rich Asians fame. I like him a lot in it. Um, yeah, it's just so entertaining. You had a blast with this one, Kev. Yeah, this this is like this is just right up my alley. Easy five stars. Of course. Yeah, it's British. Wow. Yeah, done. Yeah, and <laughs> and, and, he, and Hugh Grant, he is the skeeziest fucking journalist you could ever hope to portray on screen. He and he is obviously having so much fun with it. Right, playing against type. Yeah, and and he's good at it. So, yeah, if you're into if you're in. If you're into Guy Ritchie's British mob movies, obviously I would recommend it. But if you're not into if you're not into those, then you could probably take this or leave this. Sure. Um, this is a very niche doing. market. <laughs> <laughs> it's popular though. A lot of people like that. Stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, when I saw Snatch in the theater, I think I saw it twice in the theater and loved it. I mean, you know, uh, when you're younger, that kind of stuff really got for really did it for me. Um. I watched uh, The King of Staten Island, which JR also watched, directed by Judd Apatow. This is new uh, straight to VOD. Was going to be a theatrical release, I think, but uh stars Pete Davidson, Marissa Tomei, Bill Burr, some other people. Uh, Steve Buscemi. Steve Buscemi. Action Bronson's in it for like four seconds. It's really <laughs> weird. Uh, He's in a lot of movies for four seconds. He's in The he? Irishman for four seconds. Action Bronson is in the Irishman. Yeah, he's the uh, the guy who owns the um, the coffin makers. No shit. I yeah, don't, I don't remember that at all. Yeah, when Blake and I were watching, it was like, "Hey, Action Bronson." I've been watching his uh, show "Fuck That's Delicious" on uh, Hulu, and oh, nice. uh, so I just like 
right when he showed up. I was like, oh, it's Action Bronson. Yeah. So um, anyway. He's, uh, he's much more Action Bronson-y in King of Staten Island. Sure. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I didn't like it, uh, the King of Staten Island. I feel like it's uh, really, really long and not terribly funny. And uh, I feel like Apatow thinks that he's like a comedic auteur or something. And he's just kind of like a, I mean, I don't know what he's doing. This is just not interesting at all. It's kind of boring. And uh, I, I mean, I like Pete Davidson for sort of, I mean, I like his, I like his rap things that he was doing whenever SNL was doing the quarantine videos and he was doing like a rap every week. And mm. one time he did one with Adam Sandler. It was really funny. Like, I think he's talented and uh, enough as a, as a comedian. I don't know that he's a great actor. I, I like Bill Burr a lot, and I think he's good in this. I've Just some of the conceits of the whole, like, just, you know, it's pretty generic, the idea, what it is. You know, it's this Pete Davidson's a slacker because his father's dead, <laughs> and uh, he, de- he can't... Uh, seem to get his life together. He's a pothead and everything. And he's got a bunch of friends that are like this really pale, brutally unfunny copy of what, uh, Seth Rogen's friends are and knocked up, Mm. but obviously, you know, no talent because they're a bunch Uh. of nobodies, like as opposed to Jonah Hill and, Jason whoa, whoa, whoa. Siegel and stuff whoa, like whoa, whoa. that. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead, bud. Do you notice the guy from, from Manos, the short guy, Igor? Is that guy from Manos? <laughs> yeah, he's like the, the like the psycho crazy kid. Oh, uh, see, I didn't even recognize him. <laughs> I saw I, I noticed that it was really short. <laughs> he's yeah. he's not funny in this very much. I no, mean, he's, uh, he's not funny. Yeah, I just don't – like, I, I don't know. It's just shocking to me that you can't – I. I don't know. Didn't I don't. I don't have like much more positive to say than than you. But I, I I appreciated that this is the formula that worked, and by worked I mean like made a lot of money and was like a cultural phenomenon with Forty Year Old Virgin and Knocked Up, uh, which were you know, fucking fifteen and thirteen years ago now. But, yeah. um, mm. but like it, instead of being set in California where everyone is pretty wealthy. This is definitely like a, a lower middle working class like setup. And I didn't think it, it was not trying to go for the, the laugh out louds that you would expect in a, uh, in this kind of comedy. It's like not nearly as raunchy. It's not, there are just no big jokes. I agree. And I thought that was on purpose. And I, I don't know that that's a good thing necessarily. Cause it's again, a bad thing. That's my, that's my issue. Yeah. 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 It, <laughs> it's, it's too long. It's too long for to be like that kind of chill comedy. And, and I, I thought some of the emotional beats worked with Bill Burr later in the movie, but it, it's just, it's not enough for a 135 minute movie. Yeah. It's brutally, brutally and, long. Yeah. I, I was, you know, I, I was enticed by the idea of of Apatow getting out of like a very specific wheelhouse, but it it didn't work for me. Uh, also, this movie was shot by Robert Elswit. Yeah, it, I, that was weird. I mean, I think, and I I noticed that too, and I was looking forward to that, but I I really don't think that he. Uh, I mean, obviously, Apatow is not the director who's going to push Elswit to do anything interesting, and he doesn't. No. It's just very competently shot, and you know. 
looks fine. Not nothing to write home about. I think it's dark. It's darker and dingier than any Avatar movie has been. That's fair. That's, that's, that's fair. That's it. And I mean, I think the nighttime scenes, uh, the scene in the pharmacy, for instance, uh, you know, it's very, it's well shot, very well shot, but I don't know. That is, I, it just it, didn't do anything for me. This movie. It, this, and it also felt like this felt like I watched the first, I'm sure people have said this online too. I watched like the first five episodes of the new Pete Davidson TV comedy. Like I, this is the first half season. There's a new TV like, comedy with Pete Davidson. No, no, but like, this Oh, you're saying, like, Oh, I see. <laughs> Like, I, I thought you were saying there actually was a show with people. I, I was like, what? Like, and like, if it was a TV show and like, oh, this I, was like a shortened first season of a TV show, like sure. we would have had more Marissa Tomei. We would have had more of all the relationship. And I think uh, it could have been better though. I never would have seen it. I would have, I'd have, I'd have, I would have binged it and I would have enjoyed it. I would have been like, this is pretty good <laughs> for TV. King of Staten Island is pretty good for a film. It's piss poor, in my opinion, but, you know, not piss poor. It's just not. It's not very good. It doesn't yeah. work. It doesn't work. Apatow is not a filmmaker. He needs to stop. <laughs> he just got to stop. He made two movies that were decent. You know, like you said, fifteen years ago. It's over. Get I, over it. I mean, I, I really like funny people. I I I like the funny parts of funny people. <laughs> the parts where I, I don't like the two and a half hour runtime. Yeah. I really, and it's been a long time. Like, it feels like Trainwreck was a long time ago. I've never seen Trainwreck, and I don't, I don't like Trainwreck. And I do, I do often, or I had liked Amy Schumer before, like her comedy before, but I did not like Trainwreck. I love mm-hmm. Bill Hader, but uh... yeah, I also like. I really like LeBron James. He's a good basketball player, but <laughs> yeah. Trainwreck didn't work. <laughs> All right, um, I don't know whose turn it is. Are we counting that as your turn, bud? Sure. Okay, Kevin. Or was that your turn? It was mine, but we both talked about it. Let's see. What do I got? What do I got? Kevin's Uh, not ready. (laughs) So I rewatched Attack the Block, starring a very young John Boyega and uh, medium-age Nick Frost and Doctor Who, who, like, (laughs) I... After after I watched it again, I was uh, telling my brother like like when uh, Peter Capaldi was announced as the next Doctor, I was like, oh, all these you know like young kids are gonna look up Peter Capaldi because you know they're Doctor Who fans and they want to know who this new Doctor is, and they're gonna see in the loop and the thick of it, and they're gonna see him just cussing out everybody, you know, until he's blue in the face. That's what he's known for, pretty much. <laughs> But then I see Jody, uh, uh, Jody Whitaker. I almost said Jody Comer. It's not the same person. Jody Whitaker <laughs> in this movie, and it's like, oh, she's just you know cussing up a storm too. And they actually mentioned that in the movie, like you got a you got a dirty mouth, lady. Um, but yeah, this is a really interesting movie, and it's something that, you know, like I had seen it before, but it's been it's been forever, and I was like, oh yeah, this is actually pretty well done. And like I like the the creatures, they are very very well designed, and I think the acting is really good. Uh, John Boyega really hits it out of the park in this one. Like you can see why people wanted to cast him in other things. Some of the other things he's been in hasn't haven't been as good, but you know what can you do? 
He was in the best Star Wars movie, Force Awakens, so that's pretty good. Didn't you give that one like four and you gave four. Rise of Skywalker four and a half? Did I? I think you did. And I was no, like, I, think I, went I was four genuinely surprised about Let's get that. back into Star Wars because J.R. loves this we shit. We said we wouldn't do this. <laughs> well, you, you were the one who's like, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm just going to look up my Rise of Skywalker real quick because I don't remember giving it a four and a half. That seems insane to me. I think I gave them both four. It seemed four. insane yes, to me too. I was insane. like, what? And I gave them both four. Oh. And I like really Force, Force Awakens is better. Oh okay. Uh, but yeah, they're both good though. They're both the two best Star oh, Wars shut films. Up. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Talk about Star Wars light. Continue talking about Star Wars light. Attack the block. Go ahead. <laughs> I'm sure there's another Star Wars light that's not. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. You're good. <laughs> no, that was all. I, all oh, I really okay. had to say about it. Four, four out of five. Good movie. I'll jump into. Uh, some uh, some more controversy that JR doesn't want to discuss. Oh, it's just a controversial episode all around today. Uh, talk uh rewatched Escape from LA, John Carpenter's <laughs> Escape from LA from nineteen ninety five, starring Kurt Russell. Again, Steve Buscemi is in this. So double Buscemi on this episode. Alright. Uh Peter Fonda, Stacy Keach, the girl from Rain Man, I don't know her name. She's in Hot Shots Part Two. Uh She's very attractive. I can't remember her name. What's what, it? Is her name? Her name's Candy in the movie, right? I don't know. She's, Wait, uh, the the woman who was in uh, Portrait of a, Portrait of a Lady? Is she? No. No. Lady on Fire. Yeah. Valeria Galino. Yeah, yeah, Galino. Yeah, that's her. Yeah, she's she's, she's in Portrait she's of the, a Lady on Fire. Yeah, she's the mom. I didn't know that. What the fuck? <laughs> Holy shit! Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, guys. She was really hot in the 80s. Uh, mm. Anyway, uh, and an escape <laughs> from L.A. Um, yeah, sure enough. Portrait of Lady and Fire, La Comtesse. That is wild. She's very, very active. She mm. did like 12 movies in 2019. Okay. Um, so uh, Escape from L.A. is uh, the worst John Carpenter film, in my opinion. And I think that I understand why JR is going to disagree with that. I understand why some people think this is a good movie. And it's because they think that John Carpenter is an auteur who is aware of how cheesy his movie is. And I disagree. I think that he thinks this movie is cool in a completely non-ironic way. I think that when they're flying in on hang glider, shooting Uzis, he thinks that shit is awesome. That's what I think. And that's why this movie is trash. JR, you're a rebuttal. Think that. <laughs> I mean, so like this movie plays more like like a goofy parody of Escape from New York than a, a straight sequel. And I I have not seen anything from John Carpenter, you know, except for maybe something made this decade that makes me think that he has never been totally in control of the tone of his movies, at least. At least tone. And he has had a sense of humor. He had a, he had a huge sense of humor in the 80s and 90s with yeah. his uh, action movies. With all of his movies. So, I... Yeah. <laughs> his movies I, are funny. So, I just... I don't know where you're coming from. Where I'm where coming from is that... <laughs> you... <sighs> <laughs> you can't watch... 
I'm not even a carpenter, a huge carpenter fan. Okay. Like I don't even like. We know. I don't even. I don't even love Big Trouble in Little China. But you can see the difference between him, con- uh, yes. his control of tone in Big Trouble in Little China, and his control of your your his supposed control of tone in this movie. It's night and day. Like this movie is retarded compared. Like Big Trouble in Little China is ridiculous, but he looks like it's ridiculous yeah. on purpose. He's having fun. This movie seems like. He he thinks I, it, seriously. That's the way I read it. It feels like he thinks this is all cool. Yeah, let's do this surfing. It's going to be really really cool. Which isn't even the scene that I have a problem with. I think that looks kind of good actually. Whenever they're surfing and then uh, he and Jimmy's like driving alongside them, I think that looks pretty cool. But the just like some of the other shit, it's just like it's just ridiculous. But it feels like it's not ridiculous to the point of parody. It feels like he thinks no, this is this is just right at the edge. It's super cool, cutting edge, cool stuff. Kurt Russell's the man. He's the real badass. He wears all black leather. <laughs> you know, it's just cheesy as fuck. This movie's terrible. I don't understand how you could like this. It's, uh, I don't know. And it, um, you know, one thing I noticed, so I rewatched uh, this and New York because I hadn't seen New York in a long time. And like Snake is, is barely a character in New York, which is why I think, like this, that plays into why I think this is like parody of Snake because he's a cult figure based on based on other people saying, "I thought you were dead." <laughs> like that's sure. that's like Snake's thing. He, his thing is he barely even has a thing. He's just kind of a a macho silent type. Uh, but I I don't like I'm not gonna die on a hill to defend this movie. I do think it's very stupid. It is not near the top of of any carpenter rankings I have at all. And, and um, amongst his films, it's not a, a good film. Okay. But, but that that's, that's the, I should also say that, I mean, full disclosure and those who have listened to the podcast for a while know this, we've reviewed escape from New York and I don't like escape from New York I, either. No, I, I know that you hate escape. From yeah. New York. They're, they're both terrible films. This one is more terrible. And, uh, this yeah. one is, is, is certainly not, as good as Escape from New York. And I mean, I guess as long as we're on, I mean, I, I don't want to take all the time here, but as long as we're on Carpenter, I'll just jump into Christine real quick. Let's watch Christine for the first time. Uh, my buddy bought it for me on Blu-ray uh, for Christmas last year. So we finally got around to watching it. I had actually kind of been loath to watch this because I thought it was going to be like, I don't know, not any good. I'm not a big Stephen King fan. But uh, this turned out to be my favorite Carpenter film I've ever seen. It's a five out of five for me. I thought it was very funny. I loved all the high school stuff. <laughs> I love the bully guy with the switchblade. He looks like he's 45 and he goes to high school. I love the relationship between uh, Arnie and his buddy Dennis. I love the cinematography. This movie looks incredible. I think it's his best looking film. Um, that I've seen anyway, I have to rewatch the thing, but, uh, and, uh, yeah, I, the, all the car stuff, the special effects of the car coming back together after it's been destroyed and shit, that shit is rock solid. You cannot deny all the, the music choices with the classic oldies that just become totally <laughs> creepy. Like he's the originator of that when you think about it. Cause it's like, that's a big thing now, you know, like in your, terrible slasher movies you got to have some old old 
sounding song, you know, on a 45 or something, you know, skipping. And that's supposed to give you some feeling of dread. But in this movie, it really, I feel like it really, really works. Mm. And uh, I don't know. I fucking, I loved it. I loved every second of it. I have very little that I feel is wrong with it. I mean, I could nitpick if I was pressed. And it's not like it's a five out of five when compared to, you know, my top 10 or something. Right, right, But right. it's just, as far as Carpenter's concerned, I, this is like far and away for me. I don't, mm. I don't see anything that comes close to being this good. Maybe cool. Assault on Precinct 13. But mm. even that, I have more issues with than this. Yeah, because... Didn't you give that like a three and a half or something? I gave it a four or four and a half. Oh, okay. So you're, you're misremembering my, my star ratings here, bud. Well, it's been a while. I don't even it's know. It's been a while. <laughs> I don't even know. I don't even remember if you talked about it on the podcast. I'm sure I did. Was saying stained? Um, yeah, I gave it four. Yeah, he was singing stained. Yeah. I gave it a. Who, who was? I was. John. Oh, okay. Sorry. Yeah. It sounded it. so much like the real thing. You were like, oh my yeah. God, I thought you were playing the track. <laughs> Whoa, Eric Lewis is here. Um, anyways, I love Christine, so deal with it. Five out of five. What is your problem with Christine, JR? Oh, I don't have a problem with Christine. What? I, I, I just, I think it's a good Carpenter movie that isn't near the top. Oh, uh, it's at the you top. Know, only seen it once. Only seen it once. Wanted to watch it again just so I could... Uh, compare notes. Sure. And uh, mm. couldn't get around to it. That's all right. You know, I. Yeah. You'll probably give it the same That's rating so that many... you did. You seem like you don't really. You don't <laughs> fluctuate that much when you rewatch. It it depends. You know, I've been rewatching a lot of stuff that. Like, I also watched for the first time recently. Yeah. So mm. that doesn't change. There's, you know, I don't know. All your 79 like, watches? Yeah, I went, I went down on uh, Kramer versus Kramer. Oh yeah! I noticed your rating was low on that. I've never seen that. Not a huge fan of Kramer's Kramer. I watched a scene from it on. It was playing on Facebook for some reason, and it was a scene where he's got the. the, I guess the kid poisoned himself or hurt his eye or something. He's running to the hospital with him through the street. Yeah, he he falls off of a a jungle gym. Yeah, and he's got this toy plane in his hand, and he lands. His face lands on the plane on the ground. Brutal. But I that scene. I was like watching it, and as I'm watching, I was like. This is, uh, I feel like people aren't understanding what's interesting about this scene is that Hoffman is in such fucking good shape. He's running for like a mile and a half carrying this kid, <laughs> like at yeah. a full, at a full, you know, sprint. You know what I mean? I was like, that's pretty, that's pretty crazy. Yeah. yeah and by this time, he's in like, I think his late 40s. Yeah, he's in his 40s, yeah, for sure. Yeah, because Marathon Man, he was like 40, like, 41, 42. Yeah, something like that, yeah. Yeah. He was in. He was ripped up then. Yeah, well, I mean, not ripped up, just like lean Shredded, runner's yeah. body. You know. Yeah, yeah. Guy's in great shape. Uh, anyways, yeah, that's Christine Jr. All right, uh, back to back to Spikey Spike. Um, so back to his like, uh, you know, the, the uh, 2010s. Yeah, twenty tens. Mm. Uh, he made the Sweet Blood of Jesus, which I'm pretty sure no one ever saw. And uh, no one knew about because I had never fucking heard of it. Um, I thought like I like when Red Hook Summer came out, I remember it coming out like it played at Sundance and it was a big deal. Uh, the Super Bowl of Jesus was not, and this is uh, Spike's. Uh, sorry, what I was just got? gonna say that I rem- I remember it. I don't know if I remember it coming out, but I remember it being 
available soon after it came out. Like I remember seeing yeah. that it existed and and seeing that it was a remake or a loose remake or whatever of Bill Gunn's movie. Uh, mm-hmm. Whatever that is, it's on movie right now. Also, Ganjin Hess. Ganjin yeah. Hess, yeah. So, uh, but haven't seen either of those. Want to want to watch Ganjin Hess really bad because I like personal problems. Good. Yeah, I yeah. recommend getting that on movie right now. It's good. Mm. Uh, but anyway, this, yeah. So it is that remake called horror film Ganjin Hess, and uh, it's about this you know doctor of you know, anthropology, I think. Uh, he hires on a specialist for an African folk art research project, and uh, that man that he hires in a fit of rage murders Hess with a strange uh, sword-like artifact and then shoots himself. Hess awakens a few hours later with uh, no wounds and an insatiable thirst for blood, and uh, eventually uh, the man who killed him uh, with that artifact, uh, his widow shows up, Ganja, uh, She's looking for her husband, and uh, Hess and Ganja fall into this really strange romance, and it's uh, it's part grisly horror, part romance, and uh, I think the horror elements hit at a much higher rate than the romance, and uh, there's also a lot of connections to uh, Christianity and addiction, uh, and in fact, as far as the Christianity goes, this takes place in the same world as Red Hook Summer. Um, Hess attends the same church in Red Hook where Thomas Jefferson Bird is now the preacher. Um, that was cool. Uh, there, there are that a few scenes cool. there. I got to watch this now immediately. <laughs> I rewatch yeah. Red Hook first. Uh, and I mean, th- this is like a, this is the weirdest Spike movie I've seen. Uh, but it, it's never not interesting, even if it sometimes feel like Spike is just kind of like working through a genre exercise. Like I could never put this near the top of his movies. Cause it's just, it, it's, it, it is very clinical in a way that I have like a, maybe a hard time elaborating on, but it's a, uh, I don't think horror really holds his attention well enough. And uh, even though like the vampiric Pyrrhic murder scenes that he shoots are just like brutal as hell. And he like, he makes them look fucking cool. Um, biggest what the fuck in this movie is actually uh, Rami Malek as Hess's British butler. It's mm. really like I, I just because I'm thinking about Rami Malek now. I kept like waiting for something to happen with him because he's much bigger than he was in 2014. Yeah. Uh, and then the biggest problem with this movie is far and away Bruce Hornsby's score. It is schizophrenic. It is sometimes subtle and subdued and effective, and at other times it is just absolutely overpowering everything else in the scene, which is ridiculous, cheesy bombast. Um, is definitely a net negative, but this movie is not. It's a three and a half out of five. Definitely recommend it as this just weird piece of Spike Lee's filmography. Gonna check it out soon. Yeah, on I think it's, it's on Prime. It's definitely on Prime. It might be on more than one service, but definitely I think on, it's on Hulu also, actually. Kevin? So, V for Vendetta. The mm-hmm. shitty movie. Oh. Which is really is a it, shame. Is it shitty? I think Damn. so. I think V for Vendetta is a shitty movie. Like, uh, Natalie Portman's British accent is pretty bad. Uh, Hugo Weaving just chewing the scenery. And, like... Like, it's got a lot of, like, 
other names that I recognized. I was like, oh, this person's in it. That person's in it. Isn't John Hurt in it? Yeah, John Hurt's like the, like he's, he's now, brother, like the, right? yeah, he's the big brother figure in the movie. Um, uh, which, casting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but yeah, like, I, I don't know. Like, I, I've been meaning to read the comic again because, like, like, John, like you were talking about with heavy metal, like when you mm-hmm. saw the movie, you were like, this isn't heavy metal. No. Like, for me, Not like, yeah, seeing, like, any adaptation of Alan Moore's work aside from Watchmen is, like, this isn't insert name here. What about From Hell? Uh, it's been a while since I've seen From no. Hell. I used to love From Hell when I was a kid, but, like, well, I, the last time I watched it, I hated it. I can't, I don't know. If it's I such saw, a if simplified I saw it, adaptation. Yeah, it, it takes, like, a, a super, super small part of the narrative and makes it into the entire movie. Yeah. Which the Hughes brothers too? I've been reevaluating them, and they're not as good as I thought they were. Right. Were. I, mean, I think they they wanted to like they wanted to do a, a Jack the Ripper movie. Mm. That's fine, but uh, I, I don't think it has a ton of similarities to that very dense, massive book. Yeah, because like uh, like I remember reading a thing that Alan Moore said like what influenced him to write it was. Um, uh, Douglas Adams's book, uh, Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency, and he was like, "Yeah, to solve the Jack the Ripper murders, you'd have to solve the universe in which Jack the Ripper could exist." And so that's why, like, From Hell is a huge exploration of Victorian culture, and so you know, like, yeah, like any any movie adaptation of that is just going to pale to the book. But back to V for Vendetta, like, I feel like, I don't know, like, the characterization of a lot of the people is just pretty poor. And um, the reveals of certain things are kind of, like, you you don't, you don't care enough about anyone or anything for these reveals to mean anything to you. And... Uh, you know, playing the eighteen twelve overture is just—it just comes off as super cheesy. So yeah, two out of five. Ouch! I saw this movie once many years ago. Don't remember anything about it. Um, I watched. Uh, there's a new uh, western noir series on Criterion Channel. I watched. I shot Jesse James, directed by Samuel Fuller, and kind of hated it. Saw that. Uh, not a fan. I thought the acting was kind of poor. The story was, uh, the story had the chance to be like it's an interesting idea. Like it's just, you know what it, it's at a disadvantage for a modern audience who has seen the assassination of Jesse James by the God Robert Ford and the third act of that film essentially is this film, except you know way more um, understated and tasteful and well shot and well acted and interesting. Uh, that idea of Robert Ford, uh, dealing with his guilt and, uh, kind of making his living off of this horrible thing he's done in this movie. It's not explored terror like a lot. And when it is explored, it's almost like trying to make you feel bad for him. Like he's the victim here and he's like almost like a hero uh, in certain scenes and it just rubs me the wrong way. I don't know. And the actor who plays him is real smarmy and I didn't like him. 
but uh, that's okay. You know, you got to watch them all, you know, like Pokemon. Got to catch them all. Got to watch them all. So I watched yep. uh, Blood on the Moon next, the Robert Mitchum film directed Very by Robert, much see this. Robert Wise uh, from 1948, I think. And uh like this a lot more. <laughs> this movie is uh, very well shot. It looks gorgeous. It's a lot of nighttime shooting, and it's just beautiful. Just nighttime cowboy shit. That is the bomb.com. Uh, there's a lot of uh, good stuff with Mitchum, who's only 31 in this movie. He looks like he's, you know, 50. <laughs> it's just crazy. Um, great fist fight between him and another character in a bar gets pretty bloody and uh just a terrific little uh little western you know a good watch easy clean quick not cheesy at all real which i love there's a character in a giant fur coat a la mccabe and mrs miller i love that shit too it's probably where they got it from i gave this one a three and a half liked blood on the moon a lot uh i feel like it would go up on a rewatch honestly but uh, yeah, I'm gonna check out the rest at some point. I tr- actually started watching another one, but it wasn't a western. They trick you, see? Oh. It's it was in the modern day or that that modern day then in the 50s, mm. and it just a lot of it took place on horseback, like they're going to look for treasure or whatever. I can't remember the fucking name of the name it was. Um, huh. But uh, I yeah, I was I was disappointed. I was like, I'm not. I don't really want to watch this. Mm. I mean, I, I, I would watch it, you know, but it's like, I'd rather, I, I'm in the mood for a Western. I want to watch a Western, you know what I mean? So that's kind of my issue with that. Mm. Uh, that's, uh, all for that portion of the show. Go ahead, JR. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, finally you caught up with, uh, bamboozled. You know, after 20 years. And um, Bamboozled is another uh, Spike Lee flop and in which uh, Damon Wayans is miscast as an Ivy League-educated producer at a major network whose show ideas keep getting rejected for not being hip and black enough. Uh, so he decides to try and get fired and pitches the most awful idea he can think of to his racist bro boss Michael Rappaport. Uh, who just like eats that shit up just like thinks it's the best idea in the world uh, and the show uh, and this is what bamboozle is famous for is a variety show set in the deep south starring two black men who are also in blackface and it becomes a smash hit both uh commercially and critic critically somehow uh and it's you know this is a an angry satire that is shot on just the lowest quality digital cameras. Um, Spike said this, you know, he didn't have much of a budget for this movie and he wanted to film in New York and he wanted uh, to have the freedom of a lot of cameras. So he just picked up like the cheapest, like shitty, you know, family quality cameras he could find. Uh, Other than that, it has a lot of like the Spike Lee joy hallmarks, um, especially just like with a lot of winding side, pl- side plots and uh, liberal use of archival footage to help sell his themes. Um, I really thought this one got away from him. A lot of the first half of this movie, when they're 
you know, Damon Wayans is like pitching shows, pitching me show and setting up this show is really interesting. Um, then once they start to make this show is like, once this minstrel show gets going and we spend more time with the stars of the show, uh, as they struggle to balance celebrity and like the guilt of starring in something so racist, um, it just kind of falls apart. And then there's like a half baked romance plotline with Jada Pinkett Smith's network employee. And, uh, just gets really muddy, really bogged down, and a bunch of just things that don't work. Um, there's another subplot with Most Def. Uh, he's like the leader of this hip hop crew. That while important to like where the plot eventually goes, they never feel like they're like really in the same movie. Um, and then the biggest issue with this is the TV show itself. Um, I know this is probably due to like budget limitations, but this variety show is really just like a a stage set sketch show that does not make sense as like a, a TV show. And it looks like an off-Broadway production. It really pushes the, uh, you know, the viewer's suspension of disbelief in a, a way that I, it just, just breaks it. And uh, the show becoming as much a critical smash as commercial while the, the characters keep talking about like how controversial it is and how it's making so many people angry just doesn't make any sense it's like it can't be the most popular show on tv so insanely controversial with so many people writing about it and also such a massive critical smash it, it none of it that part just didn't make sense and i think that's a nitpick but um yeah and damon waynes i don't think i dislike damon waynes as an actor maybe i can't really think of anything i've seen him in last boy but scout he is uh okay sure uh that is the only he, movie he's been the, in <laughs> the silly, he just puts on this just silly fucking voice to convey that he is like you know smart nerd uh black guy which blank man you know i it, it, this this is supposed to be a comedy but it's uh it just uh, another thing that doesn't work um, but there are things that do. I give it a, a two and a half. The um, the movie I was trying to uh, think of the name of that is not a western, included in the western noir, is The Walking Hills. John Sturgis's The Walking Hills. This movie is a contemporary contemporary western. I guess you could call it. I'm not a fan of those, so exactly. we'll not be watching. Those that. are just called movies. Set on horses in the west. Exactly, yeah. exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's for those for for those of you who think that No Country for Old Men is a western, enjoy The Walking Hills. Go ahead, mm. Kevin. <laughs> well, time for some more controversy. So, I finally got around to reading The Godfather, and so after reading the book, I had to rewatch all three of the movies because you know you have to. And it's just the first movie that's related to the book, though, right? Well, so the in part two, all the stuff that happens with uh, De Niro, that's in the book, but oh. it's like it's a it's a smaller part. Um, and th- this is uh, definitely a point where I would say, like, so like in in Coppola's forward to the to that the edition of the book that I read. He talks about how he was thinking like, oh, this is Italian. It'll be about, you know, power and family and et cetera. And then it was like, what is this? this? Like fucking Tom Robbins or some shit. Like this is like 
so um like just I forget the words that he used, but like there's a there's a lot more like um sex in the book. Like one of the subplots you guys might already know. Uh Sonny apparently has an organ that is so girthy that it's just a pain for him and any woman he's ever with until he le- meets Lucy Mancini, who he has sex with at, um, you know, during the wedding. And apparently her vag is big enough that it can (laughs) easily accommodate his pole. (laughs) These are words that are in the book. Sure. These are words, yeah. So there's a lot. There's a lot of that. Puzo is kind of a, uh, <laughs> a, a like a B, like a hack writer, oh, right? Yes. I mean, he's not like yes. he gets a reputation because the films are so good, but he's not. He's not really like he's not considered exactly. a great writer. Exactly I don't think, by many people. Yeah. Um, so I read, yeah, I read Omerta when I was a teenager, mm. uh, and remember loving it. But I but now I remember think now I think it's just because I don't understand what literature is when I'm a teenager, and I just it was full of like bloody killings and sex and yeah, yeah. shit like that, you know? So it's probably just like very, uh, you know, yeah. Tantalizing. Yeah. Um, so yeah, like the, the movie, thankfully the first movie cuts out like, like there's a more backstory with, uh, Lucy Mancini. There's a whole lot more with Johnny Fontaine, which is like really boring, really, you know, never goes anywhere. So the fact that like you see them at the beginning and then you only see them once later on in the movie is just so much to the betterment of the story. Um, Coppola is a much better writer than Puzo. Oh, is where it really boils down to. Pretty much, yeah. Um, so yeah, like I had seen Godfather like a bajillion times, um, and bajillion I, and one now, bud. Yeah, bajillion and one. My my biggest problems with it is like, first of all, first and foremost, I should say, Talia Shire. Her scenes are like I, I know she's Coppola's sister and you know family and you know whatever, but she's really bad in it. Hmm. Like especially in the scene where she's like breaking all the china and she's just wailing and and all that. It's like, like she's doing emotional things here, but, like, she's just dropping the stuff off the shelves. Like, it's, you know, not, like, you know, like, she's not really doing anything. It's, like, she's distracted, and it's, like, no, like, you're, you're a wife whose husband has been cheating on you, and, like, the guy, and the woman that he's been cheating with has just called your home. It's, like, no, you're in a fucking rage. Like, not this... I was going to say not in this dissociated state, but I don't want to make anybody mad about, you know, those kinds of things. So, yeah, so that part really took me out of it. And the fight between Carlo and Sonny, like, it's just so poorly done. Like, like there are, like, so many times where, like, Sonny swings and, like, Carlo reacts, but, like, he obviously didn't get anywhere near him. So like so those are just so such glaring things for me that I couldn't give it a 5 like so it's four and a half. You dropped it half a star cuz the fight scene wasn't realistic. <laughs> compared to compared to so many other things in 
in the I mean, movie. I, I understand like, what like, you're like saying. Like the you know the killing of Luca Brasi and uh, you know Sonny's killing. Uh, you know what? It's it's respectable that you would uh, not give it a five, honestly. Because I mean, a lot. It's, it feels like it's just like an automatic five for so many people. You know, right? Right. It is for me. So. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and like and like well this is where I think the controversy will really come in. Like I thought less of part 2. Not because, you know, like people will say like oh it's not, you know, part 1 or whatever, but like my biggest problem with part 2 is the screenwriting. I feel like there were just so many things that came out of nowhere that should have been set up better through, you know, earlier parts of the movie. Because, like, you have this this stuff with the senator and, uh, you know, him trying to extort Michael for more money. And you have, you know, little bit of the mentions of his business with Hyman Roth. But then, kind of out of nowhere, all of a sudden, you're, you know, Michael's being called in front of this congressional committee. And, I don't know, like, going back and forth between Michael's story and Vito, younger Vito's story... It just, they just clash too much for me. But um, Al Pacino portrays Michael Corleone fucking pitch perfect. Because, like, in the book, he's always described as having this, like, cold fury. And Pacino fucking nails it every time. And let's see, what else about part two? The stuff with De Niro is fucking great. De Niro is great. He's just, he does so much with his facial expressions that, like, he doesn't need a lot of words. And he's it's great. Now, when we get to part three, like, I think you said in your uh, letterbox review, it's like, you know, you don't want to jump on the band, bandwagon of just shitting on this movie. Yeah. But it's not good. No. It's so poorly written. Like... The the final scene where they're in the opera house and like you know like all the all the final murders are taking place, it's by that time I'm like, who is that person again? Mm. Why are they being killed? I remember. I mean, yeah, that, it's just it's it, just so poorly structured. The things that the pro- main problem I had with it is that it feels like. Coppola is making it like Coppola is one of these directors who has these very clear demarcations in his career where his style changes drastically. Mm. And it feels like uh, if you watch um, New York stories, his vignette in New York stories plays a lot like Godfather three in the scenes where Michael is trying to uh, romance K again. Right. You know, when he, pretends to be the chauffeur in the car and all that stuff yeah it's very like goofy almost like a family comedy at that point like a romantic comedy Mm. and um it just feels like that's the coppola of the 90s like that's where he was going i mean uh dracula notwithstanding but that feels like that's kind of outside of the realm of what we're we're talking about but i mean like Mm. it feels like that's you know like he's going towards he's gonna make jack you know (laughs) and he's you know and um the Rainmaker and things like this, these kind of uh, bigger Hollywood, uh, mm. almost like Oscar Bation, you know, yeah, tear yeah. jerky almost kind of stuff. And it just feels like he's not interested in what The Godfather is about anymore. And he's trying to like insert his own kind of mm. stuff that he's into at that point. That's what, that's my big, that was my biggest problem with part three. Yeah. You know, it, it just felt like a different, it felt like a different filmmaker making it. 
Yeah, and like he said that like he never wanted to to be the Godfather Part Three. Like it was like he pitched, you know, the death of Michael Corleone. And I think if he had been able to run with that, maybe it would have been a little more interesting. He could have explored some different avenues. But like all the stuff with the the church and um, like the uh, the. The guy who's dressed as a priest who, like, uh, kills Don Tomasino, mm-hmm. which was something I really couldn't get my head around. Like, now we're, like, the movie takes place in, like, 79, and, like, Tomasino was already, like, you know, getting on in years, like, close to, like, uh, Vito, like, like, Vito dies when he's, like, 60. And so Tomasino is, like, supposed to be on, like, you know, that same level, like, age-wise, I thought. But here he is, like, you know, still, you know, yeah, he's in a wheelchair, but he's kind of getting around, like, 30 years later. So, um, and yeah, so, like, he ends by being shot by the, the assassin who's dressed as a priest. And I, like, I got confused between, like, the cardinal that uh, Michael confesses to and the assassin priest. And then these twins come out of nowhere. I'm like, what is... Go-? Like, I'm paying attention to the movie, but I have no idea what's going on. Especially by that final scene. When, like, it could have been, like, super powerful and amazing with the opera going on at the same time. I think that's probably what he's going for, obviously. But Yeah, yeah. But- and, I mean, I think um, a lot's been said about it, but Sofia Coppola is, you know... Uh, not not good. Uh, she's not a good actress. And uh, well, she wasn't great, but also I don't think she had great to work with. I agree. Because like the whole incest storyline, I thought was you know it's, it's weird. It's yeah, it's very weird. And yeah. like they really like it's very rarely addressed. Like Michael's like you know you're gonna become a Don and you're gonna put your family in danger, so you can't be around my daughter. It's not like y'all are cousins. Yeah. This is it this is, is kind of weird. It is really strange. Yeah, because you can argue like, oh, you know, people marry their first cousins all the time in Europe, yeah, et cetera, et cetera. But it's like, no, this is America in 1979. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, part three. Not so much. Not good. Anyway, that's the Godfather's trilogy. Uh, all right. Uh, I watched, uh, I was, I got a text from JR a month ago telling me to, okay. uh, <laughs> Telling me to uh, <laughs> just the fear in Jr's face, like what? I got a text from Jr about a month ago telling me to watch Antigone. He told me not to fuck it up. You know, it's only a movie for so long. So I, I said okay, and then I did fuck it up. I let it go. But thank for thankfully they uh, they have the library now on movie, so it's there. So I watched it uh, a couple of nights ago, and uh, I enjoyed it. To a degree, although I'll say it's not a film that I, I I don't know if it's a film you would say you enjoy. It's um, it's a real it's challenging uh, in all the right ways, though. I like the way I it's a it's completely like void of pretension in that it's just like these lopped off camera shots. It's essentially a it's the play Antigone, right? And uh, it's uh, these lopped off shots. Of the character, you sharpening the pencil there, bud. Of a <laughs> of a character, uh, the characters reciting their dialogue while standing still in one spot, exiting and entering uh, the staging area, which is a, an ancient 
pavilion in in, in Greece. Ah. Uh, uh, the the ruins of an ancient pavilion in Greece, the modern day, obviously. Um, and it, I feel like the reason that that works in it at all is because the dialogue is beautiful. Like the way that it's written, it's been translated by, uh, or it's adapted by Brecht. So it's like, it's in German and it's, um, just like the reading it is very, it was actually a little hard to, to, to keep up with at some points because it's, you know, it's the sentence structure isn't exactly the like normal, Mm. um, typical English, but, um, yeah, I don't know. It was very, very interesting and weird. And JR told me, and I read this elsewhere also that this is the director's straw and Huye. I don't know how you say the other person's name. I just, I just say Hule. Just, Hule, easy. that's fine. Uh, they, they, I've heard that this is, it's actually on the Wikipedia page that this is their most accessible film. And JR told me something of that effect also. And I, their other films must be like, uh, like brackage films. If this is the most accessible one, because this is not accessible at all, like at <laughs> all. Like this it's, is, I was thinking about people sure. I know who would actually sit and watch this. And Jr. and maybe Jonathan are the only people I could think who would be interested in something like this outside of me. Um, and uh, and it's it's almost like purely academic, you know. It's almost like like if I was studying, if I was teaching Antigone to my students, I might use scenes of this to teach it, just because mm. it's so void of uh, aesthetics. You know, it's just literally just the actors saying the words. I mean, they're dressed in the the clothing i don't know it, it's it's interesting though and it made me very interested to watch other things that they've done and uh thanks thanks to uh jr he sent me uh an earlier film called moses and aaron which is about the biblical characters moses and aaron discussing various things based on a schoenberg opera so i'm i'm looking forward to that one a lot and uh and hopefully we'll get to see others in due time they're very um obviously extremely obscure and hard to find because who wants to watch this? <laughs> they also had one thing that I've never seen anybody do this in a credit sequence, but in the credit sequence, they list the film that they shoot on. Hmm. It says Kodak and it gives the number of the film. I think it was like seven, two, four, one or something. And I was like that. I've never seen anybody mention like that's, that's hmm. an interesting, it made it feel it, that much more academic. Like this is our, this is like a, almost like a school project that we're about to turn in. This is how we shot it. You know, this right. is what we did with it. But, uh, yeah. Antigone. I mean, definitely. I don't, you know, it's again, it's a hard, I almost didn't rate it. Cause it was like, I don't know how to rate this. Like, it's not something again, you don't watch it and like, that shit was awesome. It was just like, <laughs> right. it was just like engaging on an, on an intellectual level. Mm. Uh, so definitely if you have the time, you have movie.com the app, Check it out. There's also a documentary about the two of them, a Pedro Costa documentary that's on there, which I might check out at some point. I know, I think it was almost a couple of years ago now where movie did like the first online retrospective of uh, their work with four or five movies. And I'm pretty sure Antigone was the first of the second one that they're doing. So hopefully more. Are oh, nice. Nice. That's great. That'll be and, great. Really yeah, looking forward to that. Lots of interesting things down there. But yeah, uh, I would say if you fucking hated Antigone, maybe don't spend your time doing more. But Right. Yeah, I didn't. I did not even come close to disliking it. I just, uh, like I said, the rating is almost like, 
incidental. I just uh, <laughs> the rating is academic. Yeah, exactly. It's <laughs> I don't. The rating is not a reflection of how much I enjoyed it at all. Mm. You know, it's a reflection of like almost like an objective kind of thing. But um, yeah. So I only. I, I honestly. I mean, I don't, how much? How many more do you guys have? Uh, I can do uh, two spikes at once because one of them is really short. Yeah, I have uh, two, but okay, I can go, go. Through them quickly. Go, JR. Uh, all right, so yeah, I'll make this my end. I did. Uh, I watched Spike Lee's uh, Four Little Girls from 1997. This was a uh, documentary he made about a church bombing in Montgomery in 1963, Montgomery, Alabama. And uh, just like it was a boiling point in the uh, civil rights movement in the South. The bomb killed only four people. Uh, those four people were four young black girls. And it turned like a monstrous act into just something that is impossibly tragic. Um, I was aware of this story. I, I, don't, I don't think I learned this story in school, but I, I definitely knew that this happened. Um, and I thought this was like a... It felt like an important movie to see just because like Spike sits this one out and he just lets his interview subjects tell the story of the city's then recent history um, and of their memories of the victims and of the bombing and its aftermath. And uh, it is very powerful and emotional. Um, and it's on HBO Max right now. Um, very worth watching. Uh, just to um, complete my recent Werner Herzog movies list. I, uh, I read, I watched Nomad in the footsteps of Bruce Chatwin, which is a you know, quick little documentary he made about his uh, late friend and artist, Bruce Chatwin, who died of AIDS complications in 1989 and left Werner, Werner an old rucksack. Uh, Werner just takes this rucksack to a, a few locations that were important to Chatwin uh, and talks about him. And uh, that's really it. It's very much a, Werner's front and center for 90 minutes documentary and shoots cool landscapes and uh, brags about how quickly he can hike up mountains. Um, so that's it. I had, uh, I, know, this for, is a movie I hadn't even heard of yeah. and it came out last year. It's, right? Uh, <laughs> like that's yeah. insane. It's a, uh, you know, I just like keep it up with, with Herzog and what he's doing, but it's yeah. uh, you know, in his filmography, it's nothing special, but if you like watching him do his thing on documentaries, it's, it's good. Uh, but the real one I want to talk about is Mo Better Blues. Because uh, finally watched Mo Better Blues, Spike Lee's movie that immediately followed uh, Do the Right Thing. And I thought it was great. It is Spike's maybe least narrative-driven film that I've seen. There's not a lot of narrative thrust. We just have uh, Denzel Washington's you know, trumpet player and band leader. And Wesley Snipes' Hot Shot, um, Shadow, and sh- thank you. And they, you know, they've they've got like a a personal kind of rivalry going, and that's the closest thing to a real dramatic conflict, and that kind of spreads out to some women they're seeing. But um, well, there's the thing with the club owners too. That's conflict, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And and of course, uh, Spike Lee has their manager casting himself as the most obnoxious role he can find. <laughs> Um, but it, you know, it makes me wonder if Spike's films would cohere more if he kind of dialed back the stuff that's happening and just kind of let his characters exist in a very 
well-realized realm because that's what this is. This is, you know, these guys are, are jazz musicians and the music is great and they just kind of do their thing and hang out and have small problems. And uh, it was just a, a blast to sit through. That's an interesting uh, uh, take on, on Lee as a the idea of plot versus, you know, less plot. Because uh, now that you say that, the, the films that I that I'm thinking of that I like the most are, are the, the like do the right thing. Doesn't have much of a plot, you know, it's essentially, it's like a yeah. day in the life and nothing really happens. I mean, until the end when something uh, cataclysmic happens and, you know, mm. it be, becomes a big deal. But, uh, and then like, um, 25th hours the same way. It's, you know, it's just like, there's a, there's a, a thrust towards an end point where, you know, this is going to happen. You're going to go to jail at the end of this day. But before that, they're just like partying and hanging out and talking about shit, and you know, like, and this is hanging over their yeah. heads, kind of. So mm. yeah, it's interesting. Those are great. And films. Again, you know, again, it's been so long since I saw Do the Right Thing. I didn't want to really make any comparisons. No, I understand. Yeah, but I just I before. I just rewatched it, you know, a week or two ago, and yeah, I mean, yeah, it's it's pretty narrativeless, but uh, it works really well. I was going to say also that I meant to say this earlier, but uh, Spike Lee. Um, you know, there's, there's like the, when you think about who the New York filmmakers are, you know, like they're like Woody Allen and Scorsese mm. and I guess Coppola to it, to a degree, but not really anymore. But, uh, and then Spike Lee and, and who you would think of as like the quintessential New York filmmaker. And I think Lee has to take it because his films are. Uh, while they seem on the outside, maybe that they're specific to the African American community, they're actually like they're so they're such a like a breadth of characters, you know, mm. uh, from all corners of of the ethnic spectrum, uh, and that and it and it doesn't stereotype them; it deals with them interestingly and individually, uh, in a, in a bunch of different films, uh, you know, and there and it, it gets into the different parts of New York. You know, like where, like Jungle Fever, for instance, takes place where, like, he, the, the the character works in Manhattan, but he lives in Queens. You know, mm. and then his his brother, who's a, a crackhead, lives in a different borough. You know, and it's just like I I feel like Lee has to be like the most quintessentially New York filmmaker. You know, even more even more than Scorsese, because Scorsese mm. is so Italian, and, yeah, yeah, and Woody Allen is so Jewish, right? It's just yeah. like it's if or intellectual even or something. You know. Mm. So, I don't know, that's something I had thought about while I was watching his films. Yeah, I would definitely agree. Kevin? So, I finally got around to watching Little Women. And even though I'll say, like, as a movie, I think it's way, way better than Lady Bird. Uh, most, most of the time while I was watching this movie, I was just thinking, oh my god, shut up. Because <laughs> I'm sorry, like at this at this point in time, I just can't listen to the problems of a bunch of upper middle class white women complaining <laughs> about their lives. They're I not just, upper middle class. They are. They're poor. No, they're not. They are living it. They are living a pretty good life, especially when you consider the people that live down the street. No, those people are like really poor. Those but... people are like really poor, but like they have a they have. They never have want for food. They they are not worrying about their house falling down. It's like no, these are. These I mean, that's are, not what the movie is about, though. It's not. It's not about them 
you know, struggling through poverty. It's about them, you know, being happy with what they have and finding finding romance and happiness. I love I love Little Women so much. It was so good. I, I just I Florence just, Pugh is a delight. <laughs> I'm sorry, I just couldn't do it. Like I said in my letterbox thing, like at another point in time, maybe I could have appreciated this more for what it is. But like. I just I just couldn't do it like especially when like you know like Laura Dern leaves for an ex, you know to take care of her husband and like the, the the children are supposed to be watching after this family you know um and mm-hmm. they don't and <laughs> like out and out of nowhere like you know a baby is dead and like some of these things could have easily been prevented if they had not been so self-absorbed, you sh- you're, yeah. I realize you I'm hate reaching. The characters. You're judging the characters too much. <laughs> I mean, the great people. <laughs> Chalamet rules. <laughs> this is a great film. I love. I, this movie. I, I like Chalamet's acting, uh, and I actually liked his character quite a you bit. You didn't like Pew? She's all right. Oh, she's so delightful and she's just absolutely stunning. Uh, she, <laughs> yeah, she's all right. I always thought, and I also thought that was a really like again like with the characterization. I don't know, maybe it's different in the book, but like, you know, she burns, uh, she burns Saoirse Ronan's novel, oh, and yeah. then, like, you know, Chalamet is like, hey, stick to the edges because you know, because uh, the, the ice is too thin in the middle, and then of course, like, you know, looks back with this like evil look on her face, and like just lets Florence Pugh go into the water and almost die. And it's like, okay, like she feels this bad is, about this that, is a, though, right? She don't they does. Like, don't they reconcile after that? Kind of, but at that point, it's like, okay, like you, did Kevin, not you're just, have you have to do this. You're just such a sad sack. I've, this is a great film. <laughs> I, I've been told the Florence Pugh character is is like a redemption of that character in the book who is apparently much more petulant and awful. Oh, okay. So that's, yeah, I mean, she's pretty petulant in the, <laughs> in the film, but yeah, yeah. you know, whatever. Was, uh, it's it, all good, man. You know, it's not for yeah, everybody, yeah. you know? Yeah. So at, last, least you, at least you hate Ladybird. Yeah. Cause Ladybird sucks. It's a piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's not, it's not the worst. It's just, yeah. it's not very good. <laughs> so, Last, last but certainly not least, I rewatched Hugo, the oh, Scorsese movie, mm. and oh my god, this movie is fucking brilliant. I gotta watch it's, this thing. It's, it's absolutely beautiful. All of the acting is great. The story is phenomenal. Jar is so pleased. <laughs> I mean, he loves I, that I actually love this. <laughs> well, like uh, I looked and like I actually rated it higher than Jr. Of like, course he, you did. You know. Jr. doesn't give fives. Very rarely. <laughs> But I mean, like I, I was, and I was thinking, like as I was watching it, like, like I had already wanted to do like a Scorsese list, but like, I think you know, like you know, sure, differences of opinion aside, I think there's a pretty good argument to be made for Scorsese as greatest of all time. And again, I'm sure, I'm sure, plenty of people would be like, I don't know about that, but like, I don't know. The man just consistently puts out great movies. I would say the most consistently good, sure, maybe sure. over over a, the longest career, sure. maybe. Yeah. Uh, having not seen Hitchcock's very much Hitchcock work, he worked for a long time. But, yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, I, 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 I mean, I'm fine with that. He's great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Definitely, in the if we're just talking American directors, I think definitely he'd be at the top of the heap, probably. Yeah, you know? yeah. 
don't know who. I don't really know who would rival Kubrick, maybe. But I mean, you don't really like Kubrick, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, uh, you know, uh, again, like I was saying, like differences of opinion. Like sure. I can I can respect Kubrick for what he, what he did, and you know the prolific nature of his uh, career. But on an individual level, with those movies, I just don't enjoy them as much as I enjoy other movies. Sure. Uh, I have nothing else to say really except that I I watched I binged uh, all five seasons of Better Call Saul because mm. um, uh, Jonathan did and he told me it was good and uh, it's all right it's uh, not as good as Breaking Bad and Breaking Bad isn't amazing so mm. Breaking Bad is a four out of five this show is like a three and a half okay but the final scene of season five is pretty great uh, there's a like a assassin raid on a cartel compound and it's it's pretty good. It makes me excited to see what's in store. Mm. The problem with uh, that I have with it is that I don't find Saul to be terribly interesting as a character. and Or he's Jimmy McGill for the first four and a half seasons. Oh. Um, and I find his stuff, anything with the, the all the lawyer stuff, the minutiae of law, <laughs> is I find it kind of boring mm. especially when it's not to do directly with Saul when it's about his girlfriend she's also a lawyer I could care less about anything she's doing right she's doing like pro bono defense cases I'm just like I don't why do I care about this mm. but uh yeah you know if you have all the time in the world which I do right now uh you binge better call Saul what are you gonna do I also started watching I know this much is true the Derek C. on France uh, miniseries on HBO with Mark Ruffalo playing dual roles, mm. uh, twin brothers. And uh, I'm in episode three and I'm loving it. Uh, so I'll probably talk about that next episode. Cool. Great looking show shot on film. Very grainy. Mm. Beautiful. So if that's it, let's jump right into Werner Herzog's latest film. Family Romance LLC from uh, technically from last year, I guess, but really just released mm. a few weeks ago or a week ago. Um, this is on Mubi again. Everything's it's a movie. It's a movie week. Yeah, this week. <laughs> uh, it stars no one. No, it stars that Asian guy. He's like the co-writer of it or something, isn't he? He talks about uh, him in so, the in the beginning and in the introduction. So Yuji Ishii is a. I mean, he he plays the entrepreneur and main, mm. you know, actor in this family romance LLC. Uh, he also runs this company in real life, which is why a lot of people have been confusing this for a documentary, which it is not. Does he? Um, isn't? I thought I could have sworn. Okay, I must have misunderstood then, because Herzog, in his introduction to the film, mm. he talks about. Uh, the person bringing the idea to him was a person from his rogue that, film school. Right. Yeah. Rock, rock Moran, Moran, rock Moran. Okay. M O R I N. Oh, that's who a is, different. Who's listed okay. as a producer in the credits. I see. I was, for some reason I was under the impression that that was the guy at the center of the film. Hmm. But, um, yeah, so this is, uh, it's all starring, uh, non-actors, I guess, or mostly non-actors, um, sometimes in the roles that they actually, exist in in real life mm-hmm. and uh, i guess that's kind of the goes along thematically with the film uh the kind of blurring of reality where this company in japan what they do is that they rent out family members 
so that you can spend time with your family members that you are estranged from or they are dead or right. whatever the case may be. And uh, for the most part, it's about the this, the 13-year-old girl, I forget her name. Um, Mahiro. Mahiro, who, uh, who is, uh, doesn't have a father, and she her, her mother rents her a father. And uh, they hang out in the just beautiful, amazing-looking cherry blossom park thing that they go through that's some that shit rules yep. yeah they watch that uh, killer samurai thing that mm. those people do i don't know if that's real it's a that's awesome like <laughs> yeah. i want to go to japan so bad uh, right. yeah. <laughs> you've been to japan call, right call it LARPing. twice yeah love, love wow Tokyo. this guy world traveler mm. uh yeah so what do you guys think of uh family romance llc <laughs> i i Look, I shit. I this I didn't know we were going to be covering this as a deep dive, so I, you know, my rating is up on Letterboxd already and stuff. Uh, I think I like this a little bit more than John at least, but mm. it's uh Kevin it gave is it a, two a and a half, very it is a very fascinating movie. If what they are trying to do and show is it, it's just very interesting. Um and then a lot of the like execution points of it, like, you know, since it is like a narrative film, I'm still judging performance and the way it looks. And I think a lot of that stuff can be, um, you know, bad to the point of definitely taking away from what uh, Herzog otherwise wants to uh, show you. And then I, you know, I think Herzog indulges himself in these weird, uh, you know, we'll call them subplots, but it's really just Herzog actually doing like documentary things. Like he just, takes uh, Yuchi to a ho- like a robot hotel and has mm. Yuchi ask the proprietor questions, which uh, is not much of a story thing. Does does the same thing at a funeral parlor. Uh, and those, I think, are like definitely Herzog trying to like spell out some, some theme- themes that he is interested in, but they, you know, they kind of take away from the narrative thrust of what is otherwise going on with uh, Yuchi and his company and the the main client, the girl Mahiro and her mother. But yeah. I will say that I agree for the most part. My issue with this film uh, is not like, I know, like you said, a lot of people think it's uh they get confused. They think it's a documentary. I, I was under the impression it was a documentary before it premiered on movie. And then I realized it wasn't, but um, I'm glad it's not a documentary. I think that it may have worked better as a documentary, but I prefer Herzog when he's doing narrative. I even when it's not, even when it doesn't work, I find it interesting. Like you said, this is an interesting movie. It's an interesting concept. I think the the the, the primary issue with the film is the execution, and it's just uh, uh, by virtue of the fact that Herzog is shooting the movie himself on a you know prosumer camera. And uh, it just doesn't look great. It's not staged super well. Um, and yeah, the, his kind of uh, desire to weave in these things that he just, you know, clearly just, you know, saw when he was in Tokyo and wanted to include in the film, yeah. the robot hotel and so forth. Uh, I don't, I don't, I didn't love that sequence, for instance. I, I actually liked the funeral sequence quite a bit. I liked when he got into the coffin and everything, and they were talking about it was too small for him. And, and, all that stuff. and I don't, like, all of those, like, all the side jobs and mm-hmm. side quests 
they're not all created equal at no, all. Not uh, all. You know, I, I, the robot hotel is my least favorite, maybe followed by the Oracle, even though that was more connected to the story. Um, but yeah, they were not definitely not all equal. Yeah. See, I didn't mind the Oracle. I, I liked, I, I, I thought it was, uh, kind of creepy and kind of worked for me, but Kevin, what'd you think about this? You, uh, honestly, I found it, uh, kind of boring. But my biggest my biggest problem with the movie is not with the movie itself. It's with Herzog's uh, introduction. Hmm. I much would have preferred not really knowing what the movie was about and not being explicitly told that it was not a documentary. I would have preferred some ambiguity, especially with you know somebody like Herzog. Ignorance is bliss. Yeah, and you know, um, yeah, I just would have preferred a little more mystery. That's and, interesting. Like, yeah. And, you know, the fact that, like, even though, you know, like, he explains that, like, he didn't do all of the dialogue, but he did, like, you know, like, specific scenes that had to, you know, had to. Yeah, he said he had, had certain certain sentences that they had to get to. Yeah, yeah. In the scenes. Yeah, and I feel like, especially for, you know, like, like pretty much every scene with uh, Mahiro, it's like, this girl is obviously, like, super uncomfortable but I know that it's I know that it's not a documentary. So like, why well, I mean, why is it so? Why, it's like why is it being played like this? And why is there like like my hero and her mother well, are never on screen at the same time? So there's never any like um, no uh, like connection between the two of them. Connection's not the right word I'm looking for. Like uh, resolution. Between the two of them, like, um, like I feel like we never really get into the heart of any any of these matters. It's very like clinical and observational. But for a narrative, I would think that you would want to like really get into like, you know, some of the deeper things of like you know Japanese culture. Like, why you know why is this such? I agree why is with this that. Such a necessary thing. Yeah. And, like. Um, you know, like why is it uh, unique I, to Japan? Why is it unique to Japan? And like Aziz Ansari mentions in his uh, book Modern Romance, how like romance as a thing is kind of really dying down in Japan, and like um, like how like uh, people are not getting married and having children, and so like their population is kind of dwindling. And you know, like get get into like more more of those kinds of things. And explore them a little more as opposed to like, you know, seven minutes of a mechanical fish. Sure. I did. I did think the mechanical fish was cool, though. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's very cool. But like, it's like, you know, for from. Yeah. Yes. Like from the title Family Romance LLC, you realize like, okay, it's not really about about heart. Or, you know, romance, like LLC, like we know, like it's it's established this is a company and this is, you know, um, as you see, like in the movie when the the mother tries to take it to the next level and the guy's like, no, no, this is just my job. Like, I'm just, you know, I'm essentially an actor and this is my thing. So, like, I can't actually enter into a relationship with you, even though, you know. He should want to because she's really hot. (laughs) Yeah, she is. (laughs) There, I, I have um, I have defenses. Not so again, like not that 
I, I loved what Herzog was doing here. But uh, like, as far as the girl's discomfort, I got the sense like this is she's meeting a father she's never met before, and I definitely feel like her mother is making her. Mm. Uh, so you know, it's like we have the dual thing where like this is a twelve-year-old non-actor who is being forced to you know basically improvise for you know this weird old german guy who's got a camera right in the fucking face uh just based on how he shot this but then also like i think that makes sense narratively because of her mother i think it is interesting that uh like it is it was clear to me that this mother uh did this more out of a sense of her guilt or or something with like how she felt about her daughter not having a father than the girl did Mm. i thought i definitely thought this was about the mother uh just based on how like she wanted like these specific things and was recall like she seemed to be enjoying recalling the specific things about this uh this father who's not there anymore uh but as far as like all the the culture stuff um i i just i i think this is an idea that herzog you know like he was fascinated by this film students idea of this and just kind of went to Japan with no resources, no permits, no trained actors. And just like, you could like, he's literally like filming illegally everywhere. As he, he talks about, like on the train station, they had to literally run away from the, like the train cops, uh, at the end of that scene with the, uh, like where he, you know, defaces himself for the, the, co- the sake of the, co- the coworker, you know, not really his coworker. He's a hired coworker. Um, and it, it just, I, I don't think he had, I don't think he could get into all that other stuff, even if it does, we don't know if that stuff interests him or not. Uh, and I did like the, the Japanese part of this maybe didn't interest him because I, I felt like Herzog was kind of putting like a Western morality code on the society and like giving, you know, Yuchi all this like self doubt stuff to play that. You know, I don't know, like, I think he should have been just more observant instead of, you know, like, I just don't know how, like, true the, the last scene plays. Like, this guy is providing a service that, uh, you know, Japan and Tokyo seem to want. Um, maybe that takes a toll on him in real life. Maybe not. I, I don't know if I needed um, Herzog to tell me that it does. But. Fair enough. Mm. Um, I don't, I don't have much else to say about it, to be honest. I mean, uh, me neither. I didn't, I didn't, I will say I didn't dislike it. I mean, I, I don't think it's like a fail or anything. Mm. Uh, I just, no, I, I, I feel like it could, it could potentially go up on a rewatch if I rewatch it at some point. But I mean, you know, it's, I, I wish that Herzog had, like you say, he went to Japan with no resources. I agree. I wish he would, I wish he had resources. I wish he had you know, a 24 and a Perna behind him that, you know, mm. would cut him a check like they do for Paul Thomas Anderson or, you know, these, uh, horror directors coming up or whoever, you know, I, I don't, I, this is, these are the, the machinations of the business that I don't understand is how these legendary filmmakers who have proven that they know how to make a great film and, mm. uh, you know, just as successful, uh, something like that in the, in the indie realm, you know, and, uh, they can't get financing for anything. I don't know if they don't want to, or if they, 
are not in the loop or something, or if they're just considered like old washouts and nobody cares. I don't, I, I just don't get it. Like, well, I mean, we know like Herzog is still making, he's know, making films. A I'm movie a year. Sure. Or every couple of years. Sure. I mean, I'm not saying like not. he's, and he's made stuff for Netflix and I mean, he's, yeah, I guess I'm I just, just have, we have, we have no idea what he's interested in. That's true. We, we know he's interested in his documentary subjects and we know he's running a film school now, but it, it's hard. I don't even know if he wants to have, like, does he want to deal with? Right. Exactly. You know, That's what I'm saying. Maybe, maybe he's not like seeking, maybe he's not seeking support mm. from anyone like that, but it's like, there are other directors who are, who aren't, yeah. you know what I mean? Like he's not the only one. It's like, you know, De Palma doesn't get the, the budgets that he once got. And, uh, Coppola I and mean, speaking of Coppola yeah, earlier yeah. He, you know he's kind of and I mean I, again you know, these are old old guys now I mean they're you know but it's just I don't know this feels weird to me that you wouldn't like nobody wants to take a chance on them you know? right I mean I, I, obviously their track record recently is not the greatest yeah. uh, money wise especially but what are you gonna do anyways yeah. ratings for family romance LLC I'll go uh, a three out of five. Two and a half. We both gave it two and a half there, Kev. Yep. Way to go, bud. Yeah. Uh, next week on not the a, not show. Not a ton of disparity there. Yeah. Next week on the show, which will actually be three weeks. No, two weeks from now. Yeah. Anyways, <laughs> the, uh, two weeks from now uh, will be Kevin's pick. Kevin, yes. what are we watching for that episode? Uh, let's see. So we are going to watch Lord of Illusions, directed by Clive Barker. <laughs> oh my. That's out of left field. Did not expect that. Yeah, I've been I'm wanting in. to watch it again for a while. I might watch, uh, what's the other one they did? Night something? Nightbreed. Nightbreed. On, I think it's on uh, Prime. Yeah, I might check that out. I've been meaning to check that out. Yeah. I heard some mildly positive things. So. Right, yeah. <laughs> All right, Lord of Illusions. Uh... Starring, isn't it Brian Bosworth? <laughs> isn't it? Uh, Scott Bakula. Scott Bakula. Yeah, almost and, as uh, bad. Daniel Daniel von Bargen. Bargen. Okay. Uh. Uh. uh shit. Uh. Benny from uh, the Mummy, and he's in like oh, a bunch uh, of uh, PTA movies. Yeah, a bunch of PTA movies. What's I used his name? to know his name. Kevin. Kevin. O'Connor. That's it, yeah. Yeah, that guy's great. Yeah. He's in this? Yeah. I'm and, in. Uh, Bomka Jansen. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, we'll be watching Lord of Illusions for the next episode. Till next time, visit our website at filmiac.podient.co. Email us at filmiacpodcast at gmail.com. Listen to us and rate us on iTunes or anywhere that you listen to podcasts. And until then, thanks for listening. Have a good one.